On my sixth birthday, I received two action figures. Figures to a movie I hadn't yet seen. Um, a movie that was a surprisingly low-budget film relative to the revenue it would generate and the popularity of it that continues to this day. It was called Star Something, Star Kids? No, not... Star Wars! It was Star Wars. Um, and the figures I got for my birthday were Stormtrooper and Darth Vader. And Darth Vader in particular captured one of the things I really loved about the movie and, and something that was true of movies in general from that time period, and that was this. You knew who the bad guys were, right? You knew who the bad guys were. Not that I loved the bad guys or loved evil, but at least I knew who was evil. Here was Darth Vader dressed in all black with a cape and a scary mask and that uh, commanding James Earl Jones' voice and his threatening and intimidating manner. You knew he was one of the bad guys. So naturally, I was a bit disappointed in the prequel Star Wars, Star Wars movies that came out starting in 1999. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention to everything that was going on. Maybe I didn't have the mental capacity for it, but I, I didn't always know who was bad and who was good. Made it hard to know which characters I should be pulling for and which ones I should be looking out for. And, and it seems to me this is more typical of movies and television in this day and age. The characters are complex. They're good and bad, or they appear good, but they're actually bad. And really, I think this is uh, the better picture of the world we live in. The world is like this. People aren't always who they seem to be. And, and not just out there in the, in the marketplace, in the public schools, in, in Walmart, in social media. It's amongst people who call themselves Christians, call in the name of Jesus. It, it's sometimes hard to know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And we as believers can get pretty worked up about uh, our, our values being attacked by atheists and, and non-Christians and, and drug dealers sowing destruction and, and immorality that's increasingly rampant in our culture. And, and those things are concerning, but they are not John's concern, not his primary concern anyway. As he's writing to this church in 1 John and, and for the church as it is getting started in the first century, his primary concern is not hostile, anti-Christian sentiment, the, the climate he was living in, or even the rampant immorality that was just all around them. His concern centers around what's inside and what's creeping inside the church. He's got his eye on the, the giant Trojan horse that is camped outside the doors of the church. We're in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. They speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This passage is inspired by the Spirit of God. It is God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word. And may we live in glad submission to it. In last week's passage, the end of 1 John 3, John challenged his listeners to abide, to continue living on in communion with Christ. And and Jaime did a great job bringing out how how challenging this can be, the, the battle we fight with doubt and how, how we can overcome doubt to, to persevere in a loving, trusting relationship with Christ. And how we as God's people will persevere because of God. Because of who He is and the sufficiency of what He has done for us. First John 3.20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. God is greater than our doubting, unbelieving, rebellious hearts. And because of His greatness, His omniscience, His omnipotence, we must stay connected to Him. We must remain in Him. We must abide in Him. Jesus says in John 15, 4, abide in me and and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. To abide is to be connected to Jesus like a branch to the vine. So we seek Him in prayer, in the study of His Word, in in obedience to Him and His Word, in surrounding ourselves with with others who are are doing the same thing. So this morning's passage, 1 John 4, is not a sharp break from that thought, from the abiding that Jaime talked about last week. John is continuing this exhortation to God's people to abide. It's not easy. There are challenges to be faced, decisions that have to be made, hard truths to be wrestled with. And and I I see kind of two questions that arise out of our text that John answers, two main questions that really stood out to me. The first one, how do we know true believers will persevere in abiding? And the second question, how do believers persevere in abiding? And we'll start with this second question. How do believers persevere in abiding? And there are many answers to that, but from our text, there's one main answer. John says, test the spirits. It seems pretty straightforward that if we're going to stay connected to God, if we're going to listen to Him and obey Him and, and follow Him, If we're going to make sure we're doing that, we need to make sure we're listening to him and not to someone who sounds like him. I was in college in 1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait, and there was a military buildup that began as the United Nations called on Iraq to withdraw, and Iraq refused, and our military was then mobilizing. My college Uh, roommate. He was a childhood friend as well. He was in the Army National Guard. So he's watching this very closely to see if his unit was going to be deployed. And and then sure enough, December of that year, he got a phone call. The man on the other line identified himself as Colonel Potter and told him his unit was being activated. 
and where, where do I go? Is all my shaken roommate could muster in that moment. That, you know, he's in that surreal, is this really happening? Am I really going to war? What, what do I do? Um, and in that state, he, he didn't recognize that Colonel Potter was actually the name of a prominent character in a television show that was very popular that he was very familiar with. He also didn't notice the, the voice of his good friend who was identifying himself as Colonel Potter. He got punked, or pranked, we called it back then. And so, so he was, there he was, getting ready to gather up all his things and say his goodbyes and head down to the armory and wait there for who knows how long because he would have been there all alone. He wasn't listening to the right voice. He couldn't identify his commanding officer. It matters who you listen to. It's incredibly important to be able to identify the voice of the one you should be listening to. To, to listen to your commanding officer, you need to be able to distinguish his voice from that of an imposter. To listen to the voice of an imposter leads you far from where you need to be. And it seems so simple. To follow Jesus, we need to make sure we're listening to Jesus and not just someone who sounds like Jesus. But it's harder than it seems. John points this out in verse 1. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. They're out there. They're not caged up somewhere. You don't have to go looking for them. They will find you. And they won't be wearing scary masks and capes with names that sound like Dark Father. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. These false prophets that John speaks of were inspired by Satan and, and they bring teaching that sounds true. There's a rightness to it. It's not completely false. It might be mostly true. A couple of guys come to your door and they say, Yes, we believe in grace. We believe to be saved, you, you are saved by grace, and it sounds great, it sounds like something that a, a true Christian would say, but if you probe further, you would find out what they actually, actually believe is you are saved by grace after all that you can do. You're saved by grace after all that you can do. In other words, you do your religious things, you try to be a good person, you do good works, you try to earn your way to God, and you come up a little bit short, of course, because everyone does, but then God fills in the rest. God pays the balance. It's not salvation by grace. It's really salvation by grace plus works. Biblical Christianity teaches that we are saved by grace alone. But maybe you noticed how subtle that was. It sounds kind of good. It even seems true. It might even be partly true. But if you believe it, if you listen to this teaching, you will end up far from God. You, you won't be on the path of abiding and depending and trusting in Christ. You'll be on the path of self, of self-righteousness, of independence, self-effort. It's the path of pride where, where you are your own God and you aspire to be your own God, which, by the way, was Satan's lie in the garden. And it's the Latter-day Saint teaching today that we can become gods. That's where this smooth-sounding teaching is actually taking you. How do believers persevere in abiding? Test the spirits. 
Test the spirits, verse 1. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. I don't think this is an instruction on how to conduct an exorcism. I don't think John is advocating a sit-down with demons to interview them to find out what they're really about and what they're up to. I've heard, I've heard that taught out of this passage. I think he's just pointing out something that's very significant here, something we may not have considered, something so awful we'd rather not consider it, but, but we need to be aware of it, that these folks who would have us believe they're speaking God's truth, telling us what of what is true of God and how we should live in response to God are either from God or they are from Satan. They are of Christ or they are antichrist. There's the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, and there is the spirit of error from Satan and his demons. All spiritual truth is either from a divine source or a demonic source. False teaching is not simply erroneous human judgment or a lapse in thinking or merely a mistake. It is demonic. Though I suspect that people who bring teaching that is false about God and how to live in response to God have no idea they are participating with the demonic. They are entirely sincere and, and actually very nice. But sincerity and niceness are not evidence of anything. John is telling us to test the truth of the message. If sincere and nice people are teaching what is not true of God, they are teaching doctrines of demons. Sometimes we have this picture of Satan with the pitchfork and the red suit, right? You've seen that. Or, or a demon is just this hideously gross, disgusting creature. But, but maybe what we should think of is, is just a, a nice person, teaching things about God that are mostly true. Because behind these teachings is a spirit. To, to test the spirit is to test the teaching. How do you test a teaching? You test it by the Word of God. Does the teaching agree with the Word of God? This is what the Bereans were commended for in Acts 17. In Acts, you can read all about Paul and his missionary journeys, and, and his custom on his missionary journeys was to go into a city and go into the synagogues and, and basically share the gospel in the synagogues, teach the people from their scriptures, from their Old Testaments, about Jesus, God in the flesh, who came to suffer and die for sinners and who rose from the dead victorious over sin and death and trusting in this Jesus and trusting in Him alone is the only way to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And this is offensive. Proud human hearts want credit, want to make a name for themselves. Look at me. Look how good I am. Look at all the good things I've done. Look how I'm earning all this favor and standing before God. And the gospel says, all you've done is provide the sin that made your salvation necessary. That's your contribution. Nothing to be proud of. Additionally, our proud hearts think it's our right to run our own lives, to live independently from God and to live however we want. And the gospel says, you owe everything to Jesus. The only right response to him is trust what he's done and surrender your life to his purposes. So naturally, Paul in his journeys encountered a lot of resistance. And, and what's 
really interesting to me is how often the resistance took the form of violence. People didn't like what Paul had to say, and, and when they couldn't refute it with the Scriptures and with reason, they tried to shut him up. He was beaten. He was, they tried to kill him. So offensive is the gospel, and, and it still is. And people, especially in other parts of the world, Christians in other parts of the world, feel the wrath of those who are offended by the gospel but can't shut it down with coherent arguments. So they are violent wherever the law allows and sometimes when it doesn't. Now, people here in our country are, are offended by the gospel as well. Less likely is it to lead to violence, but it shows up in different ways. I'm confronted with something I don't like in the Bible, so, so I find a commentator who can explain it away and allow me to live how I want. Or I don't like the preacher, the way the preacher applies a specific passage, so I find another preacher with a different take. Or my church has a theological position that offends me, so I'm going to find another church. And, and the church could be wrong, that the preacher who offended me could be wrong. My own understanding of the Bible could be wrong, but, but typically when someone begins this journey to explain away, to simply reject or, or run away, it's not on the basis of truth. It's on the basis of what one wishes to be true, that the truth is actually beside the point. People too often reject or receive truth claims based on what they want to be true and what they don't want to be true. If it offends, they will find a way out. And you can always, you can always find a way out. You can always find a Bible teacher or a church to hold a position that you would like them to hold. You have a religion of your own making. This is not what the Bereans did. Back to Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were noble because of how they handled the offense of the gospel. They received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures. Where are the Bereans? Where are they? You want to be noble, be a Berean. Search the scriptures. Don't be your own judge of what is right and true. Let it offend you and humble yourself under whatever it says. And John is saying the same thing in our passage this morning. Search the Scriptures. Test the spirits. It's a simpleton that just believes everything he hears, trusts every new teaching that sounds good and, and appeals to his ears. And there are theological positions that believers differ on. Solid Bible teachers can have different positions on certain issues. There are, there are numerous issues where Bible-believing Christians who have searched the Scriptures, intending to live under its authority, have emerged with different points of view. And neither is a false teacher. And these are what we call open-handed issues. We can have different views together on, on open-handed issues and, and still have fellowship and trust that the other hasn't disqualified themselves by their position. But then there are closed-handed issues. Closed-handed issues matter for salvation. To believe and teach wrongly on such issues is to take the path of destruction. Peter warned of this in 2 Peter 2.1, but 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. There are false prophets, heretics with their false teaching that bring division to the body by leading people astray. So where does this become heresy? Where does the difference of opinion become a matter of heresy? Well, that's what John is telling us in verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, the first test for any teacher is their Christology. We must consider what they believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? The words has come is in the perfect tense in the Greek, indicating that Jesus came in human nature and even now has a human nature. He has a human nature and a divine nature. He, he didn't become less by becoming man. He wasn't less divine by becoming human. He added human nature to his divinity. But in John's day, there was this kind of specific false teaching that Jesus only appeared to be human. So John is attacking that directly, but and specifically, but more broadly, John's concern is for right doctrine concerning Jesus. The spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And now just a word about when he talks about confession. John means more than lip service, more than just saying the right things, like when your mom tells you to apologize to your sibling. That's not always heartfelt, am I right? This is heartfelt confession, not just intellectual agreement with the fact of it. It's a heart that agrees with it. In 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sin, right? It's a heart that agrees with the sinfulness of sin and, and hates the sin. To confess Jesus is to rightly understand who he is and to be rightly related to him in faith. Who is Jesus? <laughs> John, in the beginning of 1 John, referred to Jesus Christ, that which was from the beginning, a clear echo back to his gospel, John 1.1, which began, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Word is Jesus, and, and from the beginning, he was God. He's uncreated. He didn't become God. He was God already at the beginning of creation. He didn't become God at his baptism. He didn't cease to be God on the cross. I like the way Simon Kistemacher in his commentary applies this. He says, anyone who denies Jesus' human nature or his divine nature is not from God. All such teachers do not speak as representatives of Jesus Christ, have not been commissioned by God, and are not the mouthpieces of the Spirit of God in this world. So are we allowing false teachers, inspired by demons, a voice in our lives? The Christian church as a whole, I fear, does not show the same level of concern as John or as the other biblical authors who warn about false teachers, those who would diminish Christ by their teaching and lead people astray. Like Kenneth Copeland, we could do a whole long seminar on his heresies, but here's one thing he said. 
Why didn't Jesus openly proclaim himself as God during his 33 years on earth? For one single reason. He hadn't come to earth as God. He'd come as a man. And Todd White, who considers Kenneth Copeland a mentor, said these things about Jesus. Jesus didn't do what he did as God. He did what he did as a man in perfect relationship with the Father. He said Jesus was born as a man. He wasn't born as God. He said Jesus didn't walk as God. And Bill Johnson in Bethel, from Bethel Church in Redding, California, he did no miracles as God, speaking of Jesus. Johnson also writes, Jesus set aside his divinity, choosing rather instead to live as a man, completely dependent upon God. These are just a few guys that are, that are well known within American Christianity. They have influence among those who call themselves Christians. Can we get some Bereans? Test the spirits. Colossians 2.9, speaking of Jesus, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus set aside his rights as God when he came to earth. He did not even for a split second set aside his divinity. So why then do these false teachers work so hard to diminish Christ? Why do they do it? It's so they can elevate man. It's, it, this is their, their message. If Jesus did all these incredible and miraculous things as an ordinary man, then you too can do the miraculous. You too can speak prosperity into existence. You can create heaven on earth. You can have your best life now. This is what John is talking about in verse 5. He says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Well, one of the ways to think of the world, to think of worldliness, is, is being consumed by the material the temporary, momentary pleasure, momentary comforts at the expense of a proper consideration of the eternal and the spiritual. If you are from the world, you have a materialistic and man-centered focus rather than a spiritual and God-centered focus, and, and, and a worldly mindset is, is so appealing. Who doesn't want to believe they can do the miraculous? Who doesn't want to believe that they can have a comfortable and healthy and, and prosperous time on this earth? Who doesn't want to believe that it's always God's will to heal on this side of eternity? That's, none of that is a tough sell. People eat that up. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but, have itching ears, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Suffering and surrender, taking up your cross daily to follow Jesus, sacrificial giving and living, of course, the unbelieving world resists such things. Rebel hearts don't actually want God. They don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want to know Jesus. They just want his stuff. They just want what he might be able to do for them. They want the healing and the financial prosperity and the good times. And so that kind of teaching will always put dollars in the plate 
and put butts in seats. It will always be popular. So first we test the legitimacy of a teacher by their Christology. Who is Jesus? Right? But a second test is found in verse 6. John says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The we John speaks of is the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the, of the resurrected Christ who were sent into the world to proclaim the gospel. They spoke as men sent from God. And you may hear people say things like, I accept the gospels, I accept the words of Jesus, but not the words of the apostles, not Paul for sure, not Peter, not John. Why do they do this? They don't want to live under the words of the apostles, so they find an excuse by which to escape. Spurgeon addresses it this way. He says, he who does not hear the apostles does not hear their master. He who dares say that Paul has not given us the gospel is not of Christ. For Jesus says, the one who receives you receives me, and the one who receives me receives the one who sent me, from Matthew 10:40. So kids, trivia time. We'll make this question worth 50,000 points if you get this right. You collect your points later if you get it right. Which words of the Bible carry the most weight? The words of Jesus or the words of the apostles? The words of Jesus or the words of the, the apostles? Which ones are more important? And the answer is false. <laughs> I know you're so, no, ordinarily Jesus is just always the right answer, but not today. Neither answer is better than the other. There, there's no distinction. Their words are all the word of God, the, the whole thing. You don't have to pick one or the other because they don't contradict. I always wonder why we have red-letter Bibles, you know, those Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red, as if those are the special words that we need to pay more careful attention to. The whole Bible is the word of God, the whole thing, every word. Rejecting the words of the apostles reveals the spirit of error, according to verse 6. And then finally, how do we know true believers will persevere in abiding? How do we know true believers will persevere in abiding? It, it's incredible when, we, when you think about it, the attractiveness of the message of the world, the, the strong appeal of, of momentary pleasures and, and the approval of men and, and success and money and, and all these things that the world offers. It, it's more than a little amazing that John's listeners haven't fallen for it. That many gathered here this morning haven't fallen for it. That true believers in Jesus won't ultimately fall for it and be led away to destruction. How do you account for that? Is it because those who have forsaken the message of the world to follow Jesus are, are smarter? They're, they're more intelligent? Are, are they more moral? More humble? More spiritual? What should these Christians look back on and, and what should they look forward to? And the answer to that question is really the key to abiding. This is what John says in verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them 
For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The reason believers overcome is not because they're smarter, better, more spiritual, more intelligent, whatever. The reason believers overcome is him. He is greater than he who is in the world. He is greater than he who blinds the minds of unbelievers. He is greater than my spiritual deadness. He is greater than my unwillingness to repent and believe. He is greater than my rebellion. He conquered the evil one. And if you are in Christ, he has saved you from the clutches of the evil one. If you're struggling with doubt, doubt regarding your salvation, doubt regarding God's work in your life, you may, you may hear a well-meaning person say something like, remember the day of your salvation. Remember that time when you repented of your sin. Remember when you placed your faith in Christ. Remember when you committed your life to Him. And that's a problem for some people because many don't know the, the day, couldn't tell you the hour when they crossed over from death to life. If they're in Christ, it certainly happened, but don't know exactly when, can't remember that. More importantly, though, this, this kind of questioning can, can lead to more doubt. Can I, can I really trust in something I've done? Was I sincere enough in my confession? Was I sorry enough for my sins? Did I really surrender every part of my life? I don't know. And what am I focused on? Something I've done. Trusting in part, at least, in my own actions. But where's John's focus? He is greater. He is greater than the one who's in the world. Let me suggest what I think might be a better question. Who are you trusting in right now for the forgiveness of your sins? Who do you worship right now as the one who has all authority in heaven and earth? Who is the one you consider worthy of living in surrender to? Jesus says this in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To abide is to stay connected to Jesus as the source of life. It's, it's to listen and to keep on listening to him. He is the one we should have our focus on. To take our eyes off of ourselves and Put them on him. Heard a testimony recently. A guy, his life was a mess in just so many ways. And in this season, he identified within himself an emptiness. He knew he needed something. He didn't know what he needed. He needed something. So he decided he's going to give this Christianity thing a try. He's going to give it some run. Didn't really grow up in a church. I don't think he even really knew, uh, had a good Christian friend or even a church that he knew where to go. So he just started reading his Bible, started reading in Genesis. And he's just plowing through the Bible, starting in Genesis, wondering when he's going to get to this Jesus guy, right? And if you know the Bible, this is a long slog before you get to Jesus. But he persevered. Amazingly, he just kept reading, finally got to the Gospels, got to Matthew. And guess what happened when he started reading about Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew right at the beginning there? He was terrified. He was terrified of this guy, the, the person of Jesus and his greatness and his glory and his power and his, his commands for how he's calling people to live, especially. He got to the Sermon on the Mount, 
And Jesus equates lust with adultery. He equates hatred with murder. And now, my friend, just he knew he was in trouble. <laughs> he knew this would be challenging, this Christianity thing, but now it's become impossible. A standard was being presented that he, he just immediately knew he couldn't li live up to. So he's reading through the Gospels, and he's reading and getting frustrated, and he's terrified by this Jesus guy and this, this standard that he feels like he's supposed to live up to. And finally he goes, you know, what does this word gospel mean anyway? And you might know gospel means good news, right? And so there he was in his, in his apartment, wherever he was living. He might have been alone, I don't know, but he just cries out, how is this good news? The Spirit of God was revealing to him the truth of his own depravity. He couldn't do it. He couldn't live up to the standard. He couldn't be good enough. He knew the absurdity of the idea that he couldn't be good enough. He leg up on so many Christians at that point. So he got to the end of Matthew. He got to the cross. And it clicked. Everything clicked. It all made perfect sense on the cross. The penalty for all his failure to live up to God's righteous standards was paid in full. It was paid in full. So he put his trust in what Jesus had done and surrendered his life to King Jesus. And when he gets done telling his story, he'll tell you if you ever ask him, I can tell you how to find him. He will say, it just happened to me. It happened to me. The whole thing happened to him. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? Yes, he repented and, and believed that that's critically important. But even that was a gift. It was granted to him. Ephesians 2.8 and Philippians 1.29 and others. God was the one who overcame his rebellion. It was God who acted decisively in his life to save him. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure you're saved, God may be working in you right now. I would challenge you right now to trust in Jesus and his work on your behalf and commit your life to him. And, and for all the true believers gathered here this morning, our, our challenge is to continue to abide, to continue trusting, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Let's ask for his help to do that. God, we praise you for uh, the goodness of your word, for the truth that can be difficult to receive, <laughs> can be very challenging to deal with, and it, it will always offend us. So I ask that you give us humble hearts to handle the offense in the right way, that we would search the scriptures that we would desire to live in submission to your word. Pray that you would do that in us, every one of us. And for those who have not yet come to know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I ask that you would grant faith to those who need it. I ask that you'd strengthen faith for those who have it, but um, are beaten down by the cares of the world, the, the presence of doubt and struggles that... Um, You'd be greater in us as you have promised. Thank you for that. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.